Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, in the news today, Tyson Food, their poultry subsidiary, has been ordered to pay a $2 million fine for discharges from a southwest Missouri plant that caused a, uh, a fish kill. Um, and uh, the company, the Arkansas-based company, said uh, that it was taking full responsibility for what it described as an unfortunate mistake. And here to tell us more about the company right now is Tom Hayes. He is the president and the chief executive of Tyson Foods, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Tom, thank you very much for being uh, with us, I referenced that uh, that news item, but I also wanted to reference the fact that you actually took responsibility for the mistake. That may not be something that major corporations do. They typically will pay a fine, and that's the last you hear of it. Wonder if you could describe this, but also in the context of taking responsibility, because I also want to note that you have taken on the pledge to cut greenhouse gas emissions uh, by thirty percent by twenty thirty. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know. Uh, our strategy at Tyson is sustainably feed the world with the fastest growing protein brands, but with that comes a lot of responsibility. We know that the population is going to be, you know, whatever the estimates are, nine and a half billion people by 2030, and we have to be a part of the solution. So, absolutely, when there are things that go wrong in our system, we will own them. We don't want them to go wrong, but sometimes we will have got a big system, and we are focused on how we can do better. So, we've got a big continuous improvement program. You know, we're tr transitioning from a company that has a heritage in poultry to really a modern food company. So that comes uh, with a lot of agility changes and things that are focused on sustainability, making sure that we can, you know, not only do the things we can do for our shareholders to make money, but also do it in a way that everybody on our team can be proud of and we can have a positive impact. Tom, modern food company, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what's sort of the next step for Tyson? So I think of four things when I think of a modern food company. First slide that I mentioned is sustainability. The second is transparency. You know. There's not a lot of trust with big food, and so we need to become more transparent. Uh, certainly, as it relates to agility that I talked about, it's hard for big companies to necessarily move quickly. Uh, a lot of small food companies are really good at that. We are working that agility into everything that we're doing. And then finally, just the whole idea of being relevant. Uh, that is something that we have to consistently be with our consumers. So we do spend a lot of money on brand building, uh, innovation. We've got business models that are large, big brands, three billion, three, $1 billion brands. And we have small brands we're really cultivating to be more relevant for consumers today. All right, just to put it into some numbers, right? 35 million chickens, uh, nearly half a million pigs, 130,000 cattle a week, right? This is big. It is. Uh, you also have stopped using antibiotics in chickens. You've also said that you've got this line of antibiotic-free pork. But you've also made an investment in a company that's based in Memphis. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about this, because this is not anything really to do with what you think of when you think of meat. So, uh, excellent question. Those business models I talked about, one of our ways that we are gonna grow the company is by investing in some new emerging models uh, and simultaneously thinking about ways that we can disrupt ourselves. So there are plenty of uh, opportunities for companies to be disrupted. We wanna disrupt ourselves. So that investment you're talking about is Memphis Meats, actually based in Chicago, but they have the Memphis Meats uh, brand. 
And what they are doing is uh, taking cells from animals, uh, so not uh, raising and then harvesting animals, but taking cells and essentially culturing those into a meat alternative. So it's very interesting technology. It's still very nascent, but we're also uh, investing in companies like Beyond Meat, so plant-based protein, introducing our own lines of of plant-based protein. So it requires a lot of different solutions to be sustainably feeding the world, and those are just some of the examples that we're entering into. Tom, you also said uh, in a presentation last week uh, that Tyson is planning to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 30% by 2030. How? So if you think about the stages uh, in one and two, those areas of um, our food production, what we control within our house, basically, those are uh, pretty easy for us to get to. The things that are difficult are the things that are really what are um, phase three, which is we're not vertically integrated in cattle. We're not vertically integrated, but for a small amount on pork or hogs. So we have to work with cattlemen and you know producers to make a big change in the system. And so that's where the majority of that will come from is sort of getting after those, those um, emissions and particularly I'd say as it relates to cattle. You have uh, also uh, been uh, kind of reshaping uh, the company when it comes to what businesses you want to be in and what businesses you don't want to be in. For example, I believe like frozen some of the frozen food businesses. Are you going to sell some? Or give us an idea of the kinds of lines that you'd like to sell. Maybe it's the, what is it, the frozen, I can't remember, frozen food assets. It has to do with the... You, some of it's on the block, right? This is the yep. Vans Foods uh, right. business, but you want to buy others. What what kinds of bolt-on acquisitions are you looking for? So we're looking for any time that we can add a new brand that's, uh, again, going back to protein. So the protein is the tailwind that we're, we're taking advantage of. Uh, consumers are actively trying to get into their diet more and more. So it would be assets that either have a brand that we can take advantage of, a new capability, uh, do they move us into a new geography, whether it's internationally or here domestically? And so those are the that's the sort of filters we have. And so it would be companies like we bought with Advanced Pierre, uh, very protein centric, not necessarily a, you know a lot of consumer band, brands, but they have a very strong culture of driving profitable foods in the marketplace, whether it's branded or unbranded. And so assets like that, ones that we can continue to build our brand portfolio, those are the important ones. Thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating to hear uh, how you're trying to disrupt yourselves. Uh, A fascinating concept as the world expands and as more people look to uh, protein-filled meat alternatives. Tom Hayes, President and Chief Executive Officer of Tyson Foods, which is uh, based in Springdale, Arizona, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Medical marijuana has been one of the hotter bets in the past few years, and a company that specializes in it is filing the first cannabis-related U.S. initial public offering. That is Kronos Group, and the chief executive officer joins us now, Michael Gorenstein. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Michael, can you just give us a sense of why you decided to file this IPO, uh, how much you plan to raise, and uh, what brought you to the U.S.? Sure. uh, Thanks for having me. So, a big driver was spreading awareness. Uh, we've actually been publicly traded in, in Canada for some time, and a lot of American investors have questions about the legality. Everyone's very surprised to hear that there are legal ways to get exposure to the industry. 
And by going through the process uh, with the NASDAQ and, and starting the trading yesterday, you know, a big, a big thing for us is being able to help uh, advance things, help explain to people that there, there is a, a market, there are federally legal avenues where you're able to, uh, to invest into companies that are developing the intellectual property, that are building brands and are, are spreading global distribution uh, without having the legal risk that you would otherwise have in the U.S. Define for people what your company does. So we really, we, we do a number of things. We look at it as a virtuous cycle, but ultimately what we're doing is developing uh, global distribution. So right now we're across uh, Germany, Israel, Canada, Australia, and the Cayman Islands. Uh, disruptive intellectual property, you know, unlocking the science behind cannabis that really hasn't been there. Because but when the you, last- hang on, when you say distribution, distribution of what? Like if I was to go to your company, what exactly, how's your company divided up and what products or services do you provide? So we directly will ship a number of products. We have 43 different SKUs that would be available if you were to come to us. Uh, varying ratios of cannabinoids, uh, flower derivative products. Uh, we offer a wide range depending on uh, on what the therapeutic area it is that you're looking for, for help in. So why list in the U.S.? You know, I think a big part of it is accessing U.S. capital, being able to, uh, you know, to get a foothold here. And ultimately, we do believe that the U.S. will be federally legal. And for us, it makes a lot of sense to give American investors a chance to get in early uh, because when we come here, we do want that support and we don't want to be sort of the, the foreign conquerors. We, I grew up in the U.S. Uh, and much, much of our management team moved to Canada from the U.S. and we certainly hope to keep more people from the U.S. involved. You know, I, I guess it's sort of uh, hard to distinguish, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the legal uh, aspects of marijuana and how it relates to medical versus recreational. And, you know, we were talking before about how you focus on medical. And yet, do you get a lot of investors coming to you and sort of treating you in tandem with alcohol companies and trying to get in on the ground floor uh, for something that'll take off on a recreational level? And how do you sort of deal with that? So we do, you know, we have uh, we do have a wholly owned license in British Columbia that will focus exclusively on the recreational market. What we do uh, try to educate people on, though, uh, is the medical opportunity is huge. And if you look at a few things it, that might not necessarily come top of mind, you'll start to understand that. So first, the countries are much more likely to legalize medical before they are recreational. It's just it's a much easier argument. It's from a policy perspective, it makes more sense. Uh, and so you've got a global medical market versus just a Canadian recreational market. And just off sheer numbers, that's a, a very big difference. Uh, the second is, thematically, there are people that are moving away from, from alcohol for some health reasons, but it's not very drastic. And you've seen in states where cannabis is legalized, there's a, a trend. But a much bigger trend is what's going on with opioids. The opioid epidemic, it's ripping across North America and really across the world. And chronic pain is one of the largest indications that we see for cannabis. So being able to provide uh, medicine that doesn't have the same harmful effects uh, is something that we see as a, as a big catalyst. And finally, uh, insurance coverage is something that we haven't seen in the U.S. Everyone looked at Colorado to say, well, this wasn't a real industry. Uh, companies can be profitable until recreational. How are you going to compete with the guy on the corner that's just going to sell you a bag if you've got to go to a doctor? Well, Germany, there's full insurance coverage, and so you're able to go to your doctor and reimburse like a, a you know true medicine. So 
that's part of why our strategy is uh, you know is being able to to target European markets. We have an exclusive distribution agreement with a 183 year old pharmaceutical company in Germany and gives us access to 12,000 pharmacies. Uh, I think the medicinal market is is a very very great opportunity, and we try to educate people. Uh, and it's a form of social entrepreneurship. You're also doing good. Can you also just uh, uh, educate us and our listeners in you know maybe 30 seconds that there is a very uh, uh, a wide variation of what is available from uh, cannabis. So, for example, THC is one. CBD is another. A lot of acronyms here. THCV, which is what you're focused on. Just describe, if you can, at a top level view, what people need to understand. Yeah, so a lot of the misconception about cannabis, you do hear people always tell you they've had different effects that you know makes them tired, it wakes them up, makes them laugh, makes them scared. You know, It cures cancer, it cures headaches. It, the analogy there would be if I were to tell you, hey, you know, pills are really good for making you sleep. Well, what's inside of the pill? So cannabis is, you could think of it as a vessel, but depending on the different genetics, there are over 100 different cannabinoids, there are thousands of terpenes, and these work together synergistically to create an entourage effect. So what the actual type of cannabis is, what the cannabinoids are, is very, very important to what effect you'll get. Just really, really, really quick. Are opioids more expensive that are used for pain killing than the, cannaboid, uh, than the cannabis product? Uh, in general, yes, they are. I'd just say that there's a recent study, we were talking about this offline, that uh, was just published in the European Journal of Internal Medicine, that uh, Israeli uh, researchers have said that the efficacy of cannabis for cancer patients uh, helps those avoid their uh, opioid dependency even before it starts. Thanks very much for being with us. Michael Gorenstein is the chief executive of Kronos Group, and yes, they are trading in the United States. We got some data overnight out of China showing that a gauge of demand for factory-made goods in the nation fell the most in five years, much more than any uh, economist surveyed by Bloomberg had expected. Here to help us understand how much we ought to pay attention to this is Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International in New York, uh, and he joins us here in, in the studios. Uh, Leland, thank you so much for being here. So what did you make of this read? Well, not much. Uh, February data, when, you, when you're talking about January and February in China, you've got the Lunar New Year, which means that uh, any comparison either between those two months or between January, February and the years before are, are, are hard, hard to make any, any real conclusions about. So we don't think that February means much. Is there some expectation of a slowdown, particularly in manufacturing this year? Sure. Uh, was the 51 to 50 uh, a noticeable drop? Not really. Should be worried about February data regardless? Not really. So I think people have been watching for a slowdown in China, and so they took note of this. But this is the, the, the trepidation the market seems to be, seem to be feeling that it's not warranted yet. Leland, what's the big deal right now with China? Is it tariffs on things like aluminum foil? Uh, is it steel tariffs? What's going on and what should investors really be paying attention to? 
Uh, that, see, that's a great question. Uh, and I don't think people are asking this enough. They, they see the headlines on steel and aluminum tariffs, and they think, well, this, this is going to just crush China. Well, it won't be good for China, but, but while we will be dealing in the coming weeks with steel and aluminum tariffs and whether President Trump is really going to go big on them, the, the real question for China is the intellectual property theft uh, investigation, Section 301, and whatever tariffs they do on that. Now, that's been backtracked a little bit behind the scenes. It's still moving through... Uh, uh, the interagency process, but if What's President worst Trump, case scenario worst worst case scenario is that President Trump decides he's gonna he's gonna make a big move before the midterms, puts sectoral tariffs on say consumer electronics, something giant like that, and you have an absolutely justifiable use of the term trade war. That is a big big deal. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen, but the worst case scenario is an all out big time trade war. What do you hear from people uh, who you're close to who are involved in these negotiations? Well, that the administration is having a very, very difficult time coming to consensus on this. Um, you know, you read this in the media, but it's the reality behind the scenes. So, one of the reasons that you don't have a 232 announcement yet is that there's the the president wants to do something big in, on steel and aluminum. 232 being the steel and the aluminum. steel and aluminum tariffs, right? Uh, he wants to do something big. Uh, but at the same time, almost everyone in his administration, every cabinet official ex except a few, uh, his entire National Economic Council think that this, this these steel aluminum tariffs, these global tariffs in a non-targeted way would be an awful idea. Similarly, Section 301, the president wants to go big. Other people are saying, look, this is potentially problematic. Sorry, that's the intellectual property theft uh, tariffs. Uh, and and so there's this desire by the president to go big. And his even inside the Trump White House, there's a desire to tamp this down because they realize that this could get out of control. And as a result, you've had this inaction because there's an inability to come to consensus. This will end sometime soon because you have deadlines on some of these ending soon. The steel and aluminum tariffs, for instance, have to be done by mid-April or the authority goes away. Just to go back to this intellectual property thing and the worst case scenario for a consumer, how does this show up? Does this mean someone's iPhone becomes more expensive? Does this mean you can't afford to buy a television? Tell us the detail. Right. So you have first order effects and then you have second and third order effects. So the first order effect in the worst case scenario, which of course is not our, our baseline scenario right now, the president decides to go big on consumer electronics and says, we are gonna put a large tariff on everything coming out of China. Uh, yes, consumers will feel the brunt of that, but I think the bigger brunt will be the second and third order effects First of all, China will retaliate. They'll start nailing, you know, hammering our farmers, soybean exports, et cetera. Uh, but at the same time, businesses operating in China will have a very difficult time. So if you're Boeing, if you're Apple, if you're any of these other companies that are trying to make inroads, you're in big trouble because the Chinese will either react immediately or you will have this cloud of uncertainty hanging over you uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Are there any estimates for how much China's GDP will get reduced if there is some sort of trade war? Now, the question is, is will, will any reduction in GDP ever get acknowledged by the government? So maybe this will be uh, <laughs> right, without any loss enough. of GDP for the Chinese. All right. Fair uh, enough. But the reason why I ask, though, is because people say, you know, if China catches a cold, the emerging markets get the flu. Uh, people look at this as a bellwether of one of the hottest trades, uh, you know, in the past few years. So, you know, what's going to be the bleed out effect of a trade war? So, it, again, 
if you have this worst case scenario, um, you will have a, a substantial drop in GDP. Um, the Chinese, uh, you could talk about the Chinese economy being more and more reliant on its own consumers internally, but that just hasn't happened yet. Uh, you know, you're still seeing these enormous trade flows, um, and 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 that's the way they want it. And so, if you have a problem with uh, with with trade, and you have uh, the U.S. clamping down and China clamping down back, you will have a problem in China. You will have a problem in emerging markets, and um, it, it's a little bit hard, hard to quantify because you can't believe the GDP figures, but you would certainly have something at least as serious as what happened at the end of 2015, early 2016, uh, in terms of a in terms of a, a economic crisis. Leland, what books or journals would you recommend that people read if they want to educate themselves more deeply in how China really works? You know, it's getting harder and harder because if you, you know, if you saw the the announcement, you know. The Chinese uh, are banning like the letter N and yes. the word "shameless" and all these other uh, uh, other things. Um, you know, it's it's getting well, harder. Hold on, hold on. Maybe people don't know that. Okay. Tell, tell people, tell them what happened. Well, in in, in the, over the last few weeks, the censorship has been ramping up even more than in, in the norm, and you're seeing these almost comical censorship of words from shameless was one of them there was a handful of other words that are homonyms with leaders names but the word the letter n was was actually banned because that was supposed to signify uh, n is greater than 2 which means uh, she's terms were in she's new term lifelong term is is greater than 2 it's uh, n equals infinity whatever it might be the chinese were going overboard with that it's got a lot of media coverage lately and it just shows you that getting information out of china is is, is much more difficult now than it was in past years. But I mean, is there something that you could recommend? Because I mean, even just to understand the structure of the of the country's politics, the party is actually above the government, right? Not anymore. Now it's all the same, right? Well, that's, that's, that's the idea. I mean, the the, par- you, the theory of the party above all, but the more these, these things are all merging into this monolithic Xi Jinping uh, force. Uh, that's that's what China is now. You know, the the mantra is China is the party is Xi Jinping. Is there any economic data that you rely upon that is actually an accurate number coming out of China? We look at everything because everything uh, puts some shades, some some flavor in, into the overall picture. But the reason we started China Beige Book back in 2010 is we didn't believe this stuff. We thought we had to get it ourselves. So, not really. I want to thank you very much for coming in and joining us. Leland Miller, Chief Executive of China Beige Book International. Go ahead and follow them on Twitter at China Beige Book. seems like an increasing number of equity investors have sounded the all clear bell, have dived back into equities after the minor hiccup over the past few weeks. Here to take stock of what investors are looking to do in their stock portfolios is Scott Wren, Senior Global Equity Strategist for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute in St. Louis. Uh, He joins us here in our 1130 studios in New York. Scott, thank you so much for being here. I was just this morning looking at 12-month T-bells and looking at how you can now get 2% yields on that. And I'm wondering, what do you tell your equity investors, your clients, 
with respect to how much money they should be holding in cash right now? Well, Lisa, first of all, it's great to be here. It's been a while since I've been in studio. But, you know, as far as uh, our investors, and and I think you can generalize this to most retail investors, who that's that's who I'm dealing with most of the time, um, they've been underinvested in stocks. They've been sitting on too much cash. Uh, would they love to see 5% CD yields? Sure they would. We probably all would. But, uh, you know, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. These, these interest rates are a little higher. Um, but when we look out over the course of the next few years, uh, still think that stocks are going to be the outperformers there. So, um, you know, our fixed income um, uh, team has not really started to recommend getting locked in here with these slightly higher rates, but uh, um, we like stocks over bonds. All right. So do you sell bonds in order to deploy the cash that you might uh, have uh, into equities? Well, I think that, that um, for one thing, Pim, uh, most of our clients still have cash, so they could just step in and not do anything with their bond portfolio. But I think, you know, you could argue that if you're locked in in an intermediate type of duration and you don't have any cash, you know, we want to be in stocks. So, I mean, if, if that's your only choice and you do not have any cash, um, you know, we wouldn't uh, mind lightening up on, let's say, high-yield bonds, something like that, and, and uh, moving some of that money into stocks. So, Scott, have you changed any of your preferences within the equity universe over the past few weeks, just as uh, we kind of reassess the, the growth picture, the yield picture? Well, I would like to say that, you know, this was all skill, but it was probably a little luck, too. And the sectors that we have been really leaning toward um, in terms of domestic, uh, we've been leaning towards industrials and consumer discretionary and financials and healthcare. And we liked those. We had been in those for a while. We liked them prior to the change in the tax code. And then when the tax code was changed, we even liked them more. So, you know, what we want our clients doing is being assertive. We want them leaning toward these sectors that are going to benefit from a continuation of this expansion, which I think was probably, um, drawn out for uh, maybe a, another year or two, a couple of years, uh, based on the new tax uh, tax reform. But what we don't want our clients doing is getting defensive. There will be some time at some point in the future to get defensive, but we've been underweight staples, underweight utilities. We, we like those positions, um, and we like them more since uh, the new tax code went into effect. Scott, it's interesting that you say we, we don't want them to get defensive. It suggests to me that a number of clients have called you saying, is it time to get defensive? Is that the case? That is the case, Lisa. You know, and I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, when the when the market steadily goes up like it did last year, my phone does not ring frequently. But when the market drops 10% in, you know, five or six trading days, my phone rings constantly. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, they're concerned. Um, they're fearful. Uh, at initially, they were a little fearful that they missed out. Some of them stepped in maybe a little closer to the top than what they would like. But for the most part, they're, they're, our clients sat on their side on their hands. So um, some want to get defensive. We're trying to encourage them not to do that. Uh, Scott, I, I want to steal something from our colleague, uh, Tom Keen. The other day, he talked about the amount of time that investors spend worrying about whether to get into a market can be something like 75 to 80%. But when they push the panic button to get out, that's something that maybe they spend 5 or 10% of their time. How do you educate someone to flip that equation? I think what we try to do, Pim, is, is we try to look 
forward, of course, and we're trying to say, what is the economy going to do? What is inflation going to do? What is the Federal Reserve going to do? That's certainly, we're focused on those things right now. What are wages going to do? Because I think that's been a worry for the market. Um, so if the forward outlook is good and and valuations are not stretched, which I don't believe that they are right now, uh, then we want our clients taking advantage of, of this volatility. And, and I think you're going to see more downside volatility. Now, do I think we're going to see the 200-day moving average again in the S&P 500? Probably not, certainly not impossible, but I think we will probably test a little lower here. You know, we've wanted our clients to have a plan to put the cash to work. And then when you have the opportunity, and one of the hardest things to do is then to get them to pull the trigger and yeah. jump in there. You know, it's amazing to me that you got that many calls because the volatility wasn't that extreme. I mean, aside from the VIX, uh, but equities didn't sell off that much. Uh, just really quickly, does this concern you with respect to investor sentiment and just how jittery people could get if, say, the market does decline for an extended period of time? It does. And, you know, Lisa, so when you look back and and uh, um, and you say, well, gee, um, over the over the last uh, ninety years, the S and P's had a ten percent pullback on average every eleven months. We hadn't had one for two years. Uh, it all happened in the course of a very short period of time. Uh, that does uh, that does scare people, and it is a concern because we had a number of clients who were cozying up to, you know. Better things happening in the stock market. We drop 10% very quickly. They, they back away. It makes them nervous. I want to thank you very much for being with us as always. Scott Wren is Senior Global Equity Strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.